Hello everyone, my name is Adam, and welcome into this week's trip down the homeward path. Before we get into things, I've got a few questions. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? Presumably so, since you're here listening to a podcast about it, but, you know, what do I know? But is there something else in your life that takes precedence? Keeps you away from your magical aspirations? A job, a career, partner, spouse, children, any and all of the above. Listen, I'm right there with you. I have a wonderful wife, three children, full-time job, and a lot of extracurricular commitments that make it really difficult to devote the amount of time, finance, and energy that high-level competitive magic normally takes. But in spite of that, are you, like me, relentlessly seeking improvement every time you get a chance to play? If that sounds like something you're interested in, then I suggest you hop in and buckle up. Now let's go for a ride. But it's a good time to remind you that we are brought to you by the following sponsors. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. They've got a little bit of something for absolutely everyone. And I do mean everyone. So head over there, check out their collection of stuff. While you're at it, I understand that the arena grind can feel like a bit of a slog, especially if, like me, you're traditionally at least a free-to-play player. But thanks to our sponsor at Grey Viking Games, you don't have to wander the wilderness in search of your glory on your own. You can head over there and find access to pre-release codes, single-pack codes, cosmetics, promo packs, uh, card sleeves, any and all of the above. So go and find your glory at GreyVikingGames.com. And if you want to support this show in a much more direct fashion, don't forget to head over to Patreon.com slash HomerPathMTG. This show is always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, go over become a patron and take advantage of your rewards and if you've got questions comments or concerns about the show or you just want to talk you can find me on twitter i'm at homeward path mtg you can find me on facebook my name is adam spain like the country yes i got picked on about that for most of my life and you can join the conversation in the facebook group the homeward pathfinders So, head over, check all that stuff out, while you continue to listen on the Homeward Path. Running a little behind schedule because I'm a, I'm a less than intelligent sometimes and completely spaced out on leaving my notes at uh, work on Thursday, so I had to record today instead. It is currently Monday which is normally when the episode's up by, but this is the world we live in. We're working a quick turnaround. So let's dive into Budget Spotlight. Budget Spotlight is a segment where we cover an uncommon, a rare, a mythic, and a commander-focused card. 
and this week our uncommon we're starting with arcanum wings now this is an old one this I, I don't blame you if you don't know what the heck this card is this is a very 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 niche card I'm gonna I'm gonna throw that out there this is as much a card for commander as it is a card for modern it's probably more a card for commander than it is a card for modern it is one of the blue aura uh, I think the enchanted creature gains flying and then it has an ability on it that has never been printed since and that ability is called aura swap where you can pay I believe it's three mana two and a blue to exchange this permanent with another aura from your hand that can legally enchant this creature so first and foremost there are two cards that the existence of them really push this thing into a stratosphere that it has no business existing in and those two cards are Eldrazi Conscription wherein you can give plus 10 plus 10 flying trample and annihilator 2 for 3 mana before combat and then declare attacks and eat two things and brain them for a bunch or if you're like me and just want to end the game in a hurry there's colossification now for the longest time i think just uh eldrazi conscription was a big reason why this card was as cheap as it is but having access now to colossification to go with it just an instant speed plus 20 get them like, I'm not going to lie, there's a part of me that's wanted to build the Winota Storm Herald deck because of the ability to hit Colossification and just kill somebody. Like, it is not out of the realm of possibility to do this. So when we're talking about Arcanum Wings, the ability to just flash in an aura without casting it, so no opportunity for counterspell or mana leak or memory lapse or whatever else you're worried about arcane denial the ability to flash in one of these giant auras on turn three is kind of massive right it's kind of kind of nutty it's either here hold this 21 damage or here let's eat some of your lands and you can get brain for four, for for 11. <laughs> as someone who has died to birds of paradise wearing an eldrazi conscription that my opponent went through a lot of hoops to get into play being able to just switch this thing on the field for the one in your hand it's kind of gross and it can also be used to flash in more quote-unquote traditional auras the likes of ethereal armor ancestral mask or all the glitters i.e you declare attacks opponent declares blocks and then you use the aura swap to get them if they don't block the enchanted creature which it has flying so it's going to be slightly more difficult to do so it just leads lends itself to some really cool play patterns that can result in a lot of damage and or a lot of resource gain out of absolutely nowhere you know, even with something as, as innocuous as a Staggering Insight. 
bounce this after I attack, and then it's almost like getting a Ninja of the Deep Hours attack in, right? You're like, declare attacks, no blocks, because we have flying. Activate Aura Swap, put in Staggering Insight, draw a card, gain some life. Like, it's not exciting. Okay, it is exciting, because drawing cards is always exciting. Don't let anyone tell you differently. But it's it's interesting. Even if it's not, you know, mind-blowing, earth-shattering, game-ending awesome, it's interesting. And it always makes your opponent play around what you could have. And for that reason, we have Arcanum Wings at 50 cents as our Uncommon of the Week. Moving on to our Rare, and this one took a little bit of work to do, honestly. I should really probably flip this one and the the one occupying the mythic slot because technically they're both been they've both been printed at rare and I'm reasonably sure they've both been printed at mythic and both of them were good in the same standard format but I digress the first one we're going to talk about is goblin guide goblin guide being one mana 2-2 two, two haste whenever it whenever it attacks defending player reveal or yeah, reveals the top card of their library. If it's a land, they put it into their hand. Otherwise, they leave it on top. So, this is the premier one-drop threat in every iteration of Burn in Modern Legacy. You just, like, your list starts. All my Burn spells, Goblin Guide, Swift Spear. And then we figure out what other creatures we have room for. It's so good. It's The moment you cast Goblin Guide on turn one, you are dictating to the opponent exactly what this game is going to be about. There is a very clear message sent as to what's happening now. And not for nothing, even though it's on the, the top end of what I would consider to be a budget-friendly card, and it is definitely one of those you are getting because you want to play it for a long time, not for one event. At $7 a copy, it's the cheapest it's been since it was standard legal. And yes, I know I'm a magic boomer. I've been around way too long when I can remember thinking, man, this is a cool standard format where people are dying on turn three because Goblin Guide and Lightning Bolt are both legal. But it's the world I lived in. Uh, moving on, our, our next card, which technically has more Mythic printings than Goblin Guide, if I'm not mistaken, thanks to Dual Decks and various other supplementary products, is Knight of the Reliquary. And this is a card that I'm largely putting on here just because I love it, right? Knight of the Reliquary is a white, a green, and one, buys you a 2-2, two -two, gets plus one, plus one for each land card in your graveyard. And then you, uh, I believe Knight of the Reliquary has Vigilance. And then you can tap and sacrifice a forest or plains. Go get a land from your library and put it onto the battlefield. So, first things first, this thing in conjunction with Fetchlands is nutty. Certifiably insane, absurd, ridiculous, hyperbolically amazing it's a 
very good with fetch lands because the fetch lands both thin your deck out they can find you forests and plains to feed to her and it puts lands in your graveyard to make bigger you add a dash of lotus cobra retreat to coral helm or a number of other silly enablers and this thing just absolutely warps a game out of nowhere Take it from somebody who had to play against it for a while. It is... It is not fun. <laughs> and it's a rare case. This is just kind of a fun fact. This is a rare case where every printing I found on the Cool Stuff Inc. website, which is who I use for this segment, every printing I found is actually about the same price. Normally there's like an old printing that's more, a new printing with less desirable art that everybody just dumps and they treat the old foils as the, you know. No, it was outside of the original foil, basically all of them, including the dual decks, knights versus goblins, all of them were $3. So, I mean, as threats go in modern, something to play on turn two off of a mana creature be it a noble hierarch a bird of paradise or maybe you're even just a little bit aggressive with your mana and decide to play it with ignoble hierarch in your deck you can do a lot worse than knight of the reliquary it doesn't die to a non-revolted fatal push it helps you trigger revolt on the opponent's turn for your fatal pushes and oh, by the way, it's going to get huge. And can help thin your deck out. And then the second you start buying into the synergy, just a little bit, like, oh, we'll play some Lotus Cobras, let's see what happens. Boom! Five drops on turn three. What happened? <laughs> so, uh, moving on, our last card, our commander focus card, is Mizzix's Mastery. Mizzix Mastery falls into the $6 price range, and I say range because the only printing they had currently in stock were the Strixhaven Showcase frames. So I don't actually know what the regular printing falls at. Probably could have TCG played it, or eBayed it, or any number of other places, but I, uh, I want to stay consistent, and in this case, I almost always use coolstuffing.com because that's the vendor I do most of my business with. So Mizzix's Mastery is three and a red. Choose or it's a target an instant or sorcery in your graveyard or exile target instant or sorcery in your graveyard and copy it, you may cast that copy without paying its mana cost. So, right there, full stop, it's already pretty good, right? Just play an instant or sorcery out of my graveyard. I can think of a few instants or sorceries I could put in the graveyard in the early turns, and this thing's going to make them busted. Emergent Ultimatum comes to mind. Genesis Ultimatum comes to mind. Uh, anything that lets me put a bunch of free stuff onto the battlefield. But when we're talking about the context of Commander, it's even dumber 
because of the rest of the text on the card, which is overload for five red, red, red. So for eight mana, instead of exiling target instant or sorcery in your graveyard, you exile each instant or sorcery in your graveyard, copy them all, and cast them all for free. Yuck. Uh, have you ever wanted to just end games? Because that's what you're going to do with this card. Like, the second you give a Spellslinger player a whole graveyard and this card with mana to cast it, it doesn't really much matter how they're going to get there, they're going to kill everybody this turn. They're going to find a way to kill everybody right now. Just full stop. Even the fair version buys back your storm spells. You know, let's let's say we're playing Niv-Mizzet Storm and Commander, and we cast a Mind's Desire fairly early, and Mind's Desire hits Mizzet's Mastery. Well, you cast all the other stuff you hit off Mind's Desire first, and then you play Mizzet's Mastery, which adds an extra spell to your storm count, and then cast your Mind's Desire again, which allows it to storm off again, and you just keep going. And somebody probably dies because you have Ral Storm Conduit or, you know, any number of things, right? It's just so good. <laughs> it's so good. Just, there, there's not a scenario where you resolve this card meaningfully and go, man, that card was average. You resolve this card and it hits something you wanted it to hit and it feels like one of the most powerful things you've ever cast like it is equal parts sins of the past and yogmoth's will for a mana cost that falls in between them and that is just obnoxious it's so good six dollars come on we can do worse than that moving on we have our brew of the week our brew of the week is a segment where I'm highlighting a deck that I don't feel like gets the amount of love it deserves either because of price or because of popularity and in this case it's definitely going to be popularity because this is a deck in historic on arena so price is not really a factor here there are a lot of wild cards in this deck because it's historic but oh this deck is fun the deck in question is Ken Yukihiro's Dragonstorm deck from the Strixhaven Players Championship. And I love this deck. From a core concept standpoint, this is decidedly not the Dragonstorm deck you might be familiar with if you, like me, played Standard during Time Spiral era. There is not a, a plethora of rituals trying to ramp into Dragonstorm and then cast... Dragonstorm with at least three copies so you can go get a bunch of Bogart and Hellkites out of your deck and kill your opponent. That's not what we're up to here. And that's okay. Because what we're doing is so much cooler. Because this deck wants to leverage the graveyard and create and facilitate what essentially amounts to being a one-card combo. 
Yeah, that's right. We're not playing Yu-Gi-Oh, but we're still doing Yu-Gi-Oh things where we turn one card into a dead opponent. Way earlier than we have any business doing. Just, it's, it's, I'm going to do this every time. I do this all the time, but it's so good. It's so good. Like, you are capable of killing your opponent on turn three. I'm not going to say you will, reliably, but you can. Because of how this deck actually combos off. I use air quotes for combo. It is technically a combo, but it takes up so much less room than every other storm combo I've ever played. And it's so much simpler, leaner, smoother. Everything about it's just mwah, chef's kiss perfect. The actual game-ending combo, which is two copies of Bladewing the Risen and one Terror of the Peaks, makes very creative use of game mechanics. For those of you, for the uninitiated, the way it works is multiple copies of Bladewing the Risen will both will make you choose which one to keep in play as a state-based action. So it will happen before your trigger from the Bladewing entering the battlefield goes on the stack. Which means you have the ability to target the one that's in the graveyard. And then uh, Bladewing the Risen, when it enters the battlefield, returns a dragon from your graveyard to the battlefield. So even if you only have two Blade Wings in your deck and you make two copies of Dragonstorm, or one copy of Dragonstorm. So you go get two dragons, and you just go get two Blade Wings, your Terror of the Peaks are in the group. Your one Terror of the Peaks is in the graveyard. Both your blade wings enter the battlefield, you get two triggers. And you... Before those triggers hit the stack, you have to decide which legendary creature you want to keep. One of them dies. Use the trigger to bring back the other one. Terror of the Peaks pings them for four. One of them dies, you get the trigger. Bring it back. Ping them for four. And you just get to do infinite damage from there. So, how do we get these in the graveyard? How do we set up the graveyard? How do we cast Dragonstorm? Well, it's funny you should ask. It's the card we just finished talking about in Budget Spotlight, Mizzix Mastery. This is the only 60-card format Mizzix Mastery is legal in where it sees play. And it is so cool here. Because it's a one-card combo. You cast Mizzix Mastery targeting Dragonstorm in your graveyard. Exile Dragonstorm create a copy, cast the copy, the copy has storm, copy it for each spell cast before it. Well, you cast the mastery so you get two copies of Dragonstorm. You go get two dragons, and if you've got the third in your graveyard, it doesn't really matter which one. You go get your two dragons, either double blade wing and terrors in the graveyard, or a blade wing and a terror and the other blade wings in the graveyard. And you get to go off and kill them. Yes, you have to sit and click through it. I'm sorry, not really. Infinite combos, this is the world you put yourself into. Aside from the combo finish, it's actually remarkably similar to basically every other Brainstorm, Faithless Looting, Memory Lapse deck in Historic. It's quite good at it. It's quite good at doing exactly what it wants to do. which is play cantrips, 
do something really cool to end the game. And that'll be the end of it, right? Well, what do we have for customization? The Ken Yukihiro list is actually Jeskai color. It's a very light white splash for Wrath of God and some, some powerful sideboard cards. And I'm sure there's something else that I am just drawing a blank on right now. But the first question to ask yourself when it comes to a customization standpoint, what other spells can I play in this deck that would be busted in half with Mizzix Mastery? Emergent Ultimatum comes to mind. Inspired Ultimatum as sort of a, draw, a, a different style of win condition comes to mind. Magma Opus comes to mind as sort of a fair game backup plan. You could go with a black splash instead of white so that you could actually just hard cast your combo if the game goes long. I.e. you discard uh, discard one of your dragons, use blade wing to bring it back, and then just have the third one and you get there. It's not ideal. It's Suffice it to say, it's not exactly a Splinter Twin situation, but it will get you there. And then you get access to Disruption to back up your combo. You get access to Nicol Bolas the Ravager as an additional dragon that you may or may not want to play. Like, that's just cool, right? Grixis Edgelord Dragonstorm. Whoa, get him. Uh, you have access to, if you want to stay lean, You want if you want to even cut the white splash, uh, you can play cards like Torrential Gear Hulk alongside your Magma Opus and another, you know, another big, dumb, powerful instant. Because Torrential Gear Hulk's really good, I hear. You know, you can play it alongside your Magma Opus and play like a one-of, one-of uh, one into the story, for example. And be able to just grind out games that way when your opponent sideboards into, like... Graf Digger's Cage, your Prismari Command can snipe down, you know, whatever. You've got, it's, it's a surprisingly flexible shell for a combo deck, and that's why I love it. So for the Outlook, it tries to be essentially the Splinter Twin version of the Brainstorm Memory Lapse Faithless Looting deck in Historic, which, you know, we, we just missed out. Seth Manfield only registered three copies, or we would have had a 32 Brainstorm Top 8. <sighs> Turns out that card's pretty good, huh? But it, you know, with the threat of the combo finish, you keep your opponents playing around that, and you can just kind of chip in for damage with cards like Young Pyromancer, or... Uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank. You can load up and try to, you know, try to set up a, a turn sequence where you get grape shot off for a good amount of damage. Like, you don't have to be all in on the combo. You can also just cast a Terror of the Peaks and beat down with it, backed up by a combination of counter magic and cantrips to find you more counter magic and cantrips and just get there that way. So... Ken Yukihiro decks are some of my favorites, and were it not for the other five people plus the honorable mention on this list, he would definitely be among my favorite deck builders. He's definitely close. He's just not quite up there yet, if that makes sense. <laughs>
So with that in mind, let's move on. Let's talk about my five biggest deck building influences. Five to five to one, and then we have an honorable mention at the end. But number five is actually two people. And I know I'm cheating. I know it. I said five people. I already threw in an honorable mention. What is this sixth person? What are you doing? Well, let's find out. Because they're kind of two sides of the same coin. These two people are Patrick Sullivan and Guillaume Wafotapa. And I've mentioned both of them on this show before. In the episode where I talked about the importance of specialization. In the episode where I talked about the benefits of mastery. Right? So what are the notable decks these people are known for? Well, in Sullivan's case, it is Mono Red. Mono Red Aggro, Mono Red Burn. If you happen across Patrick Sullivan in a tournament hall, there's a good chance you are going to see him playing Arabian Nights Mountains and bashing somebody's face in. Like, you know that the second you see him. On the other side of it, Guillaume Wafotapa was the opposite. If you saw him, you knew it was going to be a really long game, and he was going to be playing some islands. He might be playing some other lands alongside them, but he was going to be playing some islands. Whether it was uh, his variation on the Mike Flores Juicy Blue concept, or him introducing the world, reintroducing the world to draw go control during the time spiral era with uh, Teferi teachings. They just don't make blue mages like this anymore. Uh, a really close tertiary in this would be Greg Orange for similar reasons. Just you can always count on Greg Orange to play a blue white control deck and do well with it. What did these people teach me? Why are, you know, why are they big influences on my deck building? They taught me the value of owning and mastering what you do well. Instead of trying constantly to broaden horizons and figure out cute and interesting ways to learn how to do more things, they said, hey, we're really good at this. We are really, really good at specifically this thing. So we're just going to keep doing this thing. Because it it hasn't failed yet. I don't know if it will. You know? It also, they also taught me the benefit of discipline in deck building. You will never, ever, ever find bad pet cards registered for tournaments by Patrick Sullivan or Guillaume Wolfotapo. If somebody else comes out with technology based on their list that is better than what they did later on, you can bet they are going to flip it. They're, they're going to switch what they've been doing and adopt the new technology because it is better for a reason. Moving on to number four, we're going to talk about Mike Flores. And Mike Flores is kind of an interesting one because, again, like Sully, Wafo, and all the rest of them on this list 
have major finishes to their name, right? Pro Tour top eights, wins. Some of them have wins anyway. All of them have top eights, except for Mike Flores. Notable decks for Mike Flores were Napster, a monoblock control deck during the height of broken in half magic of Urza, Urza Saga Block Standard. Where people were playing Tinker, where people were playing uh, Academy. Napster was just this mono black deck that made life really miserable for them. You had Juicy Blue, which was the first iteration of sort of Flores esque tap out control, which came to dominate that standard format. You have the deck I am renaming in the spirit of of good sportsmanship uh kb toys anybody who knows the deck knows what the original name was and why it's not great uh but it was a, an homage to another deck builder the first two letters being karsten bot but we're not going to finish the original name uh, being a sort of big gruel mid-range deck with a pretty aggressive land destruction component that allowed it to kind of go over the top in uh, mid-range mirrors because you could keep them from casting their trump cards while you beat them down with an 8-8 for 5. You had the Nia Lightsaber deck that won Worlds when Jun Cascade was everybody's public enemy number one. Flores helped Andre Coimbra build this deck and win Worlds with it. So what did Flores teach me? First of all, the value of awesome deck names. We have Napster. We have uh, Urzatron with the U and the R capitalized. We have uh, White Waffle Tapa, which was his variation on the, the Juicy Blue deck built for after his stint with uh, Pro Tour Honolulu. We had the, we had the KB deck. We had Nia Lightsaber. Like, that's a sweet name that kind of sums up exactly what that deck wants to do, right? So, the next one is, the next thing he taught me is always be able to go over the top of your opponent if the opportunity arises. Now, very few people build with that in mind to extremes the way Mike Flores does. Mike Flores loves nothing more than just being a slightly bigger version of your deck. You know, having a couple extra lands and a five drop where your deck only curves to four. Or an extra land and an extra five drop to be able to win the, you know super stupid powerful trump cards war with you and then the most important thing he taught me is you don't have to put up results as a player to have something to offer the community and that's one that's really stuck with me over the years because i've always been kind of mopey about the fact that i don't have signature finishes or anything resembling them you know if there's if there's a knock on me as a player as a content creator that's it i don't have like i've i've never really done anything 
But Mike Flores says, hey, no, it's okay as long as you build, you know. You can contribute to the community in other ways besides just being one of the best players. There's more than one way to help out the Magic community. Mike Flores proved that well beyond what nearly anybody else has been able to. Number three on the list is Brian Kibler. Notable decks for Brian Kibler. Those of you who only know Brian as a Hearthstone streamer, Brian is a Hall of Fame Magic player too, by the way. Back when that mattered. Uh, just absolutely prolific. One of the biggest personalities in the game and just like having having met him in passing just does seems like a good all-around human being. Notable decks are the Dragon Master that kind of helped him break onto the scene. He was he was gifted and good before then, but this was the deck that earned him his nickname, which was during the era of the Fires of Yavamaya deck. Kibler played his version, cut the uh, the actual fires, and instead played just more big creatures going all the way up to Rith the Awakener at six mana with Armadillo Cloak to be able to win the mirror. Like, just a really classic, big, dumb mid-range deck. And I love it. You had Supergrow, wherein he took the creation of one of the, the, one of the other players on this list. Made it a little bit bigger him and Ben Rubin, which is a deck-building tandem, never, ever, ever to be underestimated. And they took what this other player had done, had sort of revolutionized the game, as it were, and dialed it up to 11. You had Ruben Zoo, which was the Zoo deck that beat other Zoo decks. If Zoo was the best deck in, in Extended at the time, they wanted to have the Zoo deck that won the Mirror. And not only did they do it, they did it so well that another brew had to be had to be created later to beat the other to, to beat the mirror breaking zoo deck in the form of the treehouse deck, which I have profiled in length on this channel before. Uh, being the door in the siege tower deck that didn't play anything that died to punishing fire, did a really good job of just hitting the perfect spot in the metagame. Not just for the weekend, but just for a little while there, right? There was call go where everybody else was interested in trying to tap all the way out for these big expensive finishers and powerful threats. And Kibler said, no, 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 no. See, I have Jace the Mind Sculptor and Squadron Hawk. And if I keep those two things rolling, it doesn't really much matter from there, right? Those two cards are really good. So we're just going to do that. Which eventually evolved into Call Blade, one of the most dominating standard decks of all time. And one of his last major Pro Tour finishes featured a Keswick Wolf Run Ramp deck that he called Red Green Valakut, even though Valakut had rotated out of standard. But it was basically the same deck. It was a really fast Primeval Titan Ramp deck. 
and you just wanted to put a lot of mana on the table, cast Primeval Titan, put a bunch of mana into Kessig Wolf Run, and kill your opponent. It's just really good, right? So what did Brian Kibler teach me? And I'm going to do this in my best Tom Hardy from Inception impression. You mustn't be afraid to dream a little bit bigger, darling. Nobody embodied the player psychographic of the power gamer more than Brian Kibler. Yes, Brian Kibler wanted to win and win tournaments and be, you know, be recognized as one of the best Magic players of all time. All that jazz. Based on the way he played, that's clearly one of the goals he had in mind. But. Kibler really liked playing big creatures. For somebody to look at Zoo, which was just a, a tight, lean, super low-to-the-ground aggro deck and go, you know what, I'm going to put Noble Hierarchs and Baneslayer Angels in my deck. Woo! Then we put Noble Hierarchs and Baneslayer Angels and Knight of the Reliquaries in my deck. We're already playing Tarmogoyf. Let's just go bigger. Let's be bigger than them. I want to play big creatures. I want to attack with big creatures. It's a demonstration of the fact that you can build decks that are both fun and competitive. Because while Kibler obviously uh, enjoyed playing these big dumb creature decks, he also won with them. And other people won with those decks while they were just absolutely incredible fun to play. And then one of the key things you learn from, re from researching Brian Kibler deck choices is the man seemed to have an innate understanding of playing around and playing to what everybody else was doing. It's a critical skill to develop. The ability to position your deck in such a way that you make your cards good against them while making their cards bad against you. Be it in the form of, you know, taking advantage of a limited card pool or taking advantage of a format that has kind of inbred itself into a state where it's susceptible to a very particular style of play. Nobody took advantage of that better than Kibler. Number two on this list, and I know I'm going to catch some flack for this being number two, is Zvi Moshewitz. One of the earlier Hall of Famers, one of the best Magic players of all time, one of the most consummate brewers, just an absolute legend in the lore of the history of the game from its competitive standpoint. Notable decks for Zvi, uh, where do you want to start? Just all of them. Uh, but we're going to stick to a few. The Replenish deck, he was a, he was a big proponent of the, of the Replenish deck during Urza Saga Standard. Uh... The Solution, which was his unique take on how to combat a metagame that had become very, very inbred going into a block-constructed tournament. Uh, his Fires of Yavamaya list was particularly noteworthy. Being a slightly bigger version, not playing some of the more embarrassing cards, and just really being stripped down, lean, disciplined, everything you want, right? And then I would be I would be not doing my job if I didn't mention Mythic. 
the the deck that said, you know what, we can play 12 mana creatures and 29 lands, but it just means we get to cast a six drop on turn three, so it doesn't matter. We're just going to do it. Well over half my deck is mana sources, and it doesn't matter. Because if I hit my land drops, the only thing that keeps me from destroying you is not hitting my land drops. So we're just never, ever, ever going to miss a land drop. What did Zvi teach me? Always try to find and tune the most powerful thing first. Never overlook the easy, oh my goodness, that card is busted, right? Fires of Invention was a classic example of this. Wilderness Reclamation was a classic example of this. In the current standard, Genesis Ultimatum is a classic example of this. These are cards that are just really, 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 really powerful. Winota. Emergent Ultimatum. If you can't play something more powerful, play something that makes their way of interacting with you difficult. A la The Solution. Although that is far from the ideal scenario, it is one of the options available. Uh, and don't be afraid of building and playing your deck to beat the mirror, like he did with Fires. And last but not least in the, in the top five list is Alan Comer, Hall of Famer. He was working for Wizards of the Coast before a lot of these guys really started putting up results. Notable decks for Alan Comer were Turbo Xerox, Miracle Grow, and Comerzilla, which was one of the earlier reanimator decks. What did Alan Comer teach me? Never be afraid of being wrong in the name of innovation. Alan Comer said, yeah, I know all these other decks are playing like 25 lands. Uh, I'm going to play 17 in my mono blue deck that's designed to try to string the game out kind of long and never miss a land drop because I play all these cantrips in my deck. <laughs> or I'm going to take this idea of playing cantrips in my deck to its absolute logical extreme and play 10 lands in my deck in Miracle Grow. And just use Brainstorm and Gush and Land Grant and... All these other cards to smooth it out. We'll get there. It's fine. Conventions are made to be broken if you are Alan Comer. You can't play a bunch of really expensive creatures in your deck. Well, I can if I'm playing eight reanimation effects and a bunch of ways to get them in the graveyard. Rules are rules, are rules for you, man, not for me. <laughs> and then my honorable mention is Mark Herber Holes, notable decks being Heasy Street, Gruel, and his variation on teachings that splashed a fourth color in order to play Pull from Eternity to buy his teachings back. That got him to a another Pro Tour Top 8. And the biggest thing that Mark Herberholz taught me was with his first deck that I ever saw him play, which was Easy Street Gruel. It was the first Pro Tour I ever watched. And the thing this deck taught me is never be afraid it does if you know your deck is good it doesn't matter if you're the only one playing it 
there was nobody else playing the Herber Holes list of gruel at that at that tournament at Pro Tour Honolulu 2006. Nobody. Everybody else was still messing around with cards like Shock and Volcanic Hammer. Heezy said, no, we're just going to play Scorched Rusalka and Flames of the Blood Hand. We're going upstairs all day. We're going to get under you and beat you to death. And then Mulder Von Cloak allows me to just beat over your big stupid elephants and your dragons. Deal with it. So at the end of the day, that's that's really all I've got, right? Just five pretty major deck building influences on me that have all taught me very different things over the years. And they all kind of coalesce into my deck building process that tells me I should really reevaluate my deck building process a lot because these people are really good at magic and I am I am okay at magic. <laughs> but that's all I've got for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed listening. You got questions, comments, concerns, send them to me on Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. Send them to me on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. Uh, join the conversation in the Homeward Pathfinders Facebook group. Leave them in the comment section down below if you're on YouTube. Uh, or if you want to become a patron and have a much more direct hand in the show, go to patreon.com slash HomewardPathMTG. And that's all I've got for this week because it is I am up against the clock. I am running late as it is got to get uh, got to get in got to get to bed get back to work in the morning so with that thank you for listening i will catch you next week be safe everybody